Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with our friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What's up? Hey, Nate. How are you doing? Living the dream. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's good to be back in the studio. It's fun to be talking about the Old Testament, but it's also hard to follow up an authentic, I, I say authentic, a semi-authentic Babylonian call to prayer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for, I don't know if we're ever going to get something that epic again. For those who don't know, those instruments were legitimately the inter- instruments listed off in the back. I mean, so Except for Amy Grant there at the end. We, we did have a little recorder. Oh, yeah, we also had the Jurassic Park recorder. So, so we, we threw in a little extra at the end. But th- those were the, the right instruments up to that point. Authentic, dude. That's what we strive for on this show. Semi-authentic. Semi, yeah, semi-authentic. <laughs> Just playing different songs, but they were the right instruments. All right. What are we talking about tonight? Tonight, we're going to talk about Hosea and Joel. And uh, we, we only have like six lessons to go in the Old Testament. It kind of it kind of breaks my heart, but I know, Nate, you are anxious to get into New Testament. I love the NT, baby. Yeah, it's it's around the corner. It's coming up. And we've got a Christmas episode coming up soon as we're getting into the holiday seasons. And uh, we, we've had one listener submit her favorite episode back at uh, Genesis 42 through 50. But the rest of you out there, if you want, if you want highlights put together, kind of an end of the year Christmas special as we're trying to put together maybe some of the inspirational moments or something that you've learned or taken away that you've enjoyed or something that, that just really made you laugh. Uh, submit submit your favorite moments on the show so we can kind of put together a little highlight episode at the end of the year for you. Hi at weeklydeepdive.com. Hi at weeklydeepdive.com. Yeah. Well, right. should, we, should we go into Hosea? Let's do it. All right, Nate. Do, do you feel like... We've talked about the idea of God being married to Israel a lot. I mean, yeah, I do. I feel like we've definitely mentioned it. I mean, it was Abraham and his wife um, and Jacob and and Rachel and, and Leah. And, and you go into Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, yep. Song of Solomon. Yep. It's it's kind of almost an old an old horse at this point. Let's beat that thing. <laughs> why 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 is it so repeated? Because you know what your favorite New Testament coming up next year. You know that that's a very dominant theme in the New Testament when we talk about the bridegroom coming and the wedding and the feast and everything that's going to happen. It's a it's a very dominant theme throughout all of the scriptures. Any 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 thoughts or anything you want to throw out there on why something would be that repetitive before before we go into Hosea and his his wife Gomer? I mean, I think it's just that it's a symbolism that a lot of people can relate to with intense, vivid emotion. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I mean, it's something that things have changed a lot in the world, but but marriage is one thing that for the most part has been very stable from, from the beginning till now. It, it, it's, it's very basic. It's very easy to understand, but it's very central and, and dominant. And, and I like these themes of, of restoration and destruction. And I, and I like how often we see it with Babylon, with Egypt, 
and and now we're going to be seeing it with the with the wife and the husband and this relationship as we've talked about keeps going over and over and over again as we apply it to our own lives i feel like sometimes we look at it and we we feel like we have to get it perfect we have to do it just right but if there's one thing we learn from the old testament it's israel didn't get it right on the first or the 10th try and and if we don't get it right and if we're not perfect I mean, God loved Israel. Israel was his favorite. He, he favored him. He cared for them. And, and it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're off the path and wrong. It means you're normal and that God loves you and that he's still reaching out to you. And maybe that, that repetitiveness is just another way of saying, like, not only does it apply in all of these situations back then, but it's so repetitive because it still applies to you today. So I, I kind of like that. Let's, let's dive into Hosea. As we give a little bit of historical context to the prophet, he lives kind of contemporary with Isaiah. Hmm. And Hosea is going to be in the northern kingdom of Israel prophesying where Isaiah was in the southern kingdom of Jerusalem for for the most part. And the cool thing about Hosea is his name is the Hebrew form, Hosea, of the Greek word Jesus. So this is the the Hebrew book of Jesus. And when we read about Hosea taking a wife, it's Jesus taking a wife. And and I think that adds another dimension to it. And and it takes this almost tired example over and over. I mean, the central important theme and makes it maybe a little bit more vivid in, in talking about it from a perspective of Jesus's wife. Uh, let's go into verse two. And and first two, in the beginning, the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go take thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. I mean, I'm going to stop right there. This is something that, to me, it's a little bit interesting. When, when we talk about Hosea's wife, and, and a lot of people say that he married a prostitute or he married a whore, but that's not what I'm getting out of the scripture. That's not what I'm understanding it. And I just want to break this down a little bit and and maybe offer a different perspective and see if you see it the same way or if I'm I may be misunderstanding it. When he says, go take thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, uh, tell me, Nate, how are children committing whoredoms? That is hard to explain. Yeah, the, the, the children aren't, right? So if you're saying, okay, well then take children that are offspring of whoredoms, Okay, but when you go on here, you say she is going to provide. So, um, verse three. So she went. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. So she bore Hosea a son that she conceived with him. So how is that a child of whoredoms? So I think the fact that we're saying children of whoredoms here is giving us a clue that this isn't. When you say a wife of whoredoms and a children of whoredoms. There's something a little bit more going on here. And, and it tells us in the next line, going back to verse 2, after the children of whoredoms, it says, For the land hath committed great whoredom. So they're saying that the land is the whore. The land is the prostitute. And when you say take a wife of the land and children of the land, for the land hath committed that, 
you're not saying that the wife is a whore or a prostitute. You're not saying that the children are whores or prostitutes. You're saying that because they live in a land that hath committed that by, by association of being from that land, by being, so really what he's saying here is take an Israelite wife and have Israelite children. And because the Israelites are committing whoredoms, and when we talk about whoredoms, look at this at the very next line. So it's going to define this even further. Um, for the land hath committed whoredoms, departing from the Lord. So this isn't sexual whoredoms. The, and as we've talked throughout the Old Testament, this, like we said at the beginning, this is a very dominant theme. The marriage, excuse me, the covenant relationship between God and his people is described as a marriage relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your husband, you will be my wife. And when you start worshiping other gods, that's being compared to as being unfaithful or playing the harlot or the whore or going and serving other gods. So when he says that the nation is worshiping other gods, now he's saying that's their whoredoms. They're departing from the Lord. So he's saying from a nation that has departed from the Lord, take a woman from that nation and have children from that nation. Am I, am I reading that the right way, Nate? Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. So it, I, I get it. When I look at the Come Follow Me lesson manual and, and they go through and they have that picture and it's a painting of, of Gomer and, and she's kind of, her face is turned down and, and she's sad and it says the sinner who the Lord is taking in and helping. I get it. The art is is powerful. It's a good image. It's a good painting. But I think it's unfair to depict Gomer as a sinner. And, and I get that that's the role that she's playing symbolically in these verses. So that is the, the symbolism. That is the artistic behind the story. But I don't think it correctly characterizes the character of who Gomer was. Nowhere in here does it say that she, she had other children through other relationships or that she did anything wrong. Just that because she's from the land that has committed whoredoms by worshiping other gods, she is a wife of whoredoms mm-hmm. and her children are children of whoredoms. Okay. All right, moving on. All that makes sense. It's good. It's good context. Thank you. Um, the Lord calls the first son that they have, uh, call his name Jezreel. For a little while, I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and I will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. That, that requires a little bit of, of going back. Do you remember Jezreel and what happened? He has a, a vineyard, a, a plot of land that's, that's really nice. And the king is Ahab. And Ahab's wife is Jezebel. And, and this is also very symbolic and powerful when you think about it. Ahab is an Israelite prophet, not Israelite prophet, Israelite king. And rather than marrying an Israelite queen, he marries Jezebel, who is an outsider and who worships other gods. So even the imagery there is almost this this whoring image of, of the fact that the king of Israel is turned away to another wife, to an outsider who worships other gods. And when she comes in and introduces all of her gods, now the king Ahab is going to push idolatry and the worship of Baal upon all of northern Israel and institute this religion and have priests there with the government to to worship the Baalim, the, the other gods. 
This is the time period when we get of the story of Elijah, when he builds the ark and he challenges, not the ark, I'm sorry, the altar and challenges the priests of Baal to, to a contest and makes fun of their God. Like perhaps he's using the bathroom and can't hear you. And he pours water all over the altar and, and has the fire come down and consume him. This is that time period. And, and, I mean, this relationship typifies Israel turning away from God. But at this time, Jezebel looks at Jezreel's property and she wants it. And they concoct a, a plan to kill Jezreel in order for the king to, to get that land. And they do this. And, and this is Israel's sin. They're worshiping other gods. And not only that, but they're also grinding the, 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 the people of the poor. They're committing crimes to take advantage of other people, to steal from other people. This, it's not just the king. As goes the king, so often follows the kingdom. This is what's happening. So the Lord's calling this to their remembrance and having the prophet name his son after this man who had his property stolen. And he says that he's going to avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And then he's going to have conceive and bear some more children. Um, verse 6, and she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said, call her name Lo. Lo is the Hebrew for no. And Rahuma, uh, excuse me, Ruhama. And Ruhama, it's that same word that we read in Daniel when we were talking about the, the eunuch had Ruhama on Daniel. It's this compassion, uh, the womb, this, this tender care, uh, this love. And he says, no more, no more love or compassion. And I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, for I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, nor by horses, nor by horsemen. Do you know what they're talking about here? Like saving Israel, or excuse me, not saving Israel, destroying them, but saving Judah and having mercy on her. This is Assyria that's going to come in and destroy Israel in the north. And then they're going to get down to where they're going to destroy all of Judah. But Jerusalem, they can't. They have it surrounded. And remember, the, the king Sennacherib writes in his record, I have Hezekiah surrounded like a bird in the cage. And all I need to do is reach my hand in and pluck it out. But at this time, Sennacherib gets assassinated by his sons. And all the armies have to flee. And there's, there's chaos. And they slay a bunch of them and, and run. The lepers go out and they find all of this food that's been left by the armies behind and they go back and tell the city, hey, we're delivered. Isaiah had prophesied that not one single arrow was going to fly over the wall into the city. So when Hosea prophesies this, he says, I will save them um, by the Lord their God and will save them, not save them by bow, nor sword, nor battle, nor horses, nor horsemen. There was no battle involved. God saved them without them having to do any fighting at all. That's what he's prophesying of. And it's interesting because here we have Hosea, who's a prophet in the north, who's prophesying the destruction of his people, and his wife is called a whore. Whether or not she's a whore is, is besides the point. That's what she's being classified as. At the exact same time, I'm going to flip over to Isaiah, who's another prophet, who's at the same time as, um, Isaiah is the same time as Hosea, but look at what he's asked to do. Isaiah chapter 7, and it's uh, verse 14. Therefore, 
the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat that you may know to refuse the good, uh, refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. So this prophecy now, Isaiah is also commanded to take a wife, but Isaiah's wife is called a virgin. And the virgin shall conceive. And they're talking about the land that's going to lose both their kings. The land in this case is the land of Syria and the capital being Damascus and the land of Israel, the capital being Samaria. Those two kings had plotted to take the king of Judah off the throne and replace it with their own king so that they could unify and fight Assyria. But the king of Judah was a righteous king. The king of Israel was not a righteous king. And so Isaiah prophesies, he says, go and take a wife and and she is going to be called a virgin. She'll conceive and bear a son. And before the son's old enough to know between good and evil, that land and their two kings are going to be taken away by Assyria and destroyed and you won't have to fear them anymore. So I want to look at the contrast here. Hosea is taking a wife and you're calling that wife a whore. Isaiah is taking a wife and she's called a virgin. The, The difference is virgin is not a virgin in the same sense as not having any sexual contact. Okay. If you look at olive oil and it's pure virgin olive oil, it means that it's not mixed with anything else. It's pure. And so in here, he's saying, take your wife who is pure and loyal to you, who hasn't mixed with anyone else. And he's using that as a symbol to describe Judah. Judah has a righteous king and they haven't turned to any other gods to worship them and pray to them for deliverance. So their wife is now, the prophet's wife is symbolic of the nation as a whole. This is a virgin nation. And then Hosea in the north, his wife is a symbol for all of the north countries. That's not to say that she was pure or not pure, but because the nation turned to a lot of different gods, that's how she's characterized and she's symbolizing the nation as a whole in there. But when we go back to Hosea, and and I just think it's interesting that you have the the same prophets living at the same time, both taking a wife, but you have that opposite here. Hosea is going to also prophesy the the downfall of Judah, as does Isaiah. And, And he talks about Judah, and he says that their goodness is like the dew. It's going to dry up and disappear. And, and they're going to have to be carried away captive as well. They're not always going to last. And so it's, it's, it's not all good down the road, but it, it is interesting to mention that. Okay, moving on. He's next going to have another son, and he calls her Lo Ami. Lo, again, means not, and Ami means my people. And he says, you are not my people. And, and I will not be your God. You don't follow me. You've rejected me. I'm, I'm going to turn away. But the point of this whole thing is Hosea is marrying somebody. And, and because, because she is a wife of a nation that isn't following him, her offspring are not going to be his people. Her offspring are not going to have that mercy. But still, Hosea is commanded to marry her and to love her. And the idea, the sense that God is committed to Israel, despite everything that they're doing, he is committed to her and there's going to be an eventual return and restoration. 
And if we skip forward a little bit into chapter 12, there's something also really interesting happening here in Hosea. And it's going to be describing the nation through the acts of a single man. Uh, let me just show you what I'm talking about. Verse 1, Ephraim feedeth on the wind and followeth after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation. So when we say Ephraim, Ephraim refers to the kingdom of the north. The kingdom of the north is often called Israel, Jacob, or Ephraim. And then the kingdom of the south is usually called Judah or Jerusalem. So he's going through this idea, daily increases and lies, desolation, and they do not make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried into Egypt. Now, this is where it's going to switch to verse two. The Lord hath a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his doings, he will recompense him. Verse three, he took his brother by the heel in the womb and by his strength, he had power with God. Now, all of a sudden, you're not talking about a nation. You're talking about a single man. And when we're talking about the things that he did wrong, look, he's being blamed for taking his brother by the heel in the womb and by the strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us, even with the Lord God of hosts, the Lord in his memorial. So we've switched from talking about this nation to talking to about a single individual, Jacob himself. When did he take his brother by the heel in the womb? Uh, remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau's born first, Jacob's holding on to his heel, and his name Jacob literally means supplanter because he's trying to take the birthright, and he's going to pursue that birthright his whole life. And then he says, and by his, his strength, he had power with God. This is referring to when Jacob wrestled God all that night and God dislocates his thigh and says, what do you want? Let go of me. And he says, I'm not going to let go until you give me a blessing. And he changes his name to Israel because he had power with God. He prevailed with him. And it's interesting because in Genesis, it gives us the idea that maybe he was wrestling with the servant of God or with the messenger. But here in verse three, it says he had power with God, with Elohim. Yea, he had power over Elohim. And it's written as the angel, but listen to how this verse is worded in verse four. And he prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. Unto who? He found him in Bethel. Who did he find in Bethel? Bethel is Hebrew for Beth, means house, El, God, house of God. He found him in the temple in Bethel, the house of God. And there he spake with us. And who is it that he spoke? even the Lord God of hosts. So who did he have power with when he wrestled? Who did he find in Bethel? The Lord God of hosts. So you're talking about this nation and it switched to just not talking about the nation, but actually talking about Jacob from whom the nation came from individually. And the reason why I want to bring attention to that is the sense that a na- an, an individual can be used to describe a nation is also true of the reverse that oftentimes the nation can be turned to describe the individual. We can use Israel to describe our personal lives and what we go through. We have our own personal Babylons, our own personal Egypt moments, our own personal rebellions and times we turn away from the Lord. And the Lord is saying as individuals, he wants to love and reclaim us as well. So it's not just about his people as a whole, but also about us individually.
All right. There's something else that's really interesting here, and I'm going to take it back a few chapters. Verse, uh, chapter five, verse 14, for I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I will tear and go away and I will take away and none shall rescue him. So as the Lord talks about being a lion to Ephraim in the north and then also Judah in the south, I think there's a lot of symbolism and power here. You're going to see when Christ comes to the Americas in the Book of Mormon and 3rd Nephi, he's going to talk about after the restoration of Israel, Israel will go among the nations like a lion and tear and none shall deliver. But here it's it's a role reversal. Here it's talking about Israel suffering from, from lions and the Lord is going to be the lion that tears them apart where later they're going to become the lion. And And where is this fulfilled? And I want to talk about the gathering of Ephraim versus the gathering of Judah, Israel in the south, uh, Israel to the north and Israel to the south. When Assyria conquers Ephraim and Israel in the north, he takes them and relocates them all over the world and scatters them to different countries. But not only does the king of Assyria do that, but he also gathers a lot of different groups of people from different nations and plants them into Ephraim in the north. And it goes to the allegory of the olive tree, this idea that this, this branch, this house of Israel has been corrupted and produced wild fruit. So the Lord is taking wild branches from all over the world and grafting them in. This is the restoration of Ephraim. And when he did that, what happened is literally lions started coming and eating the people. And when lions were eating the people, the king's like, I can't have these wild lions eating all of my subjects. That's not, that's not good for business. And he says, the reason why the lions are eating the people is because the people don't know how to worship the God of that land. The God of that land is Jehovah. So let's find some Levites that I carried away captive from Ephraim from the north, and let's get them back in there to convert the world to Jehovah, to the, the worship of their God. And so this is the gathering of, of Israel. Ephraim, the northern tribes, were gathered by a bunch of nations being grafted in and then taught the correct principles on how to worship God and please the God of that land. And, and the catalyst for that was lions were literally going among the people and eating them up until they were to turn to the Lord in righteousness. And, and that's the restoration of Israel. And this gathering of Israel in the north happens about a hundred years before Judah gets carried away captive into Babylon and smitten and destroyed. And then afterwards, the restoration of Judah is going to follow, but it's going to follow very different from what we see Israel in the north. Rather than grafting a bunch of different nations into Jerusalem, Judah itself is going to be replaced back into the land and allowed to rebuild their temple and rebuild their city and rebuild their their walls and reestablish themselves. And Nate, I, I asked you about this at the beginning, this idea that doesn't it seem like we're getting pretty repetitive at this point, talking about God and his wife, Hosea taking this, this wife of whoredoms. Doesn't it seem repetitive that we've covered the story of Egypt and Babylon, and this captivity, and the, the, the scattering of Israel, and the gathering, gathering of Israel. It seems like it's happening over and over and over again. And I think the point is, 
it does repeat. It's supposed to repeat. It's supposed to happen again. And so we should expect that this story of the restoration of Israel in the north should happen by grafting all sorts of different nations into this new Israel, this, this, this new land of Israel to restore them, to restore Ephraim. And then go to our Articles of Faith and what we believe in, in Article of Faith number 10. We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the 10 tribes. The 10 tribes is the north. That Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent. So we see in the American continent a gathering of the 10 tribes, the kingdom of the north, which the principal tribe is, the tribe of Ephraim, and that this is the gathering. It's a gathering of nations coming from all over the place, and it's going to happen here on the American continent. And if these patterns keep repeating themselves and we keep talking about the same thing, then we should suspect that nearly 100 years after the gathering of the kingdom of the north, you're going to see a scattering of the kingdom to the south. So if the gathering of the restoration of the gospel happening in 1830, Joseph Smith seeing God in 1820, and, and Joseph Smith and, and, and the church being collected in the 1840s, 100 years from that point, and the 1920s, 30s, 40s, you should see the southern kingdom, Judah, being persecuted, being destroyed, which is going to take us to the Holocaust, which is going to take us to World War II. And it's not going to be until the destruction and the death of the German nation. And, and when we look at Babylon and the captivity and the old times, it was because Persia, a stronger nation, comes in and conquers them. When, when a larger, a more powerful nation comes in and destroys the oppressing nation to the Jews in the, not, in the modern times, then we're going to see a reestablishment of a Jerusalem in the old world for the Jews to be restored and put back in their place, the recreation of the land of Israel. So we have an old Jerusalem and a new Jerusalem and a literal gathering of the 10 tribes as a collection of all of the nations being planted into the new Jerusalem, followed by a restoration of the old Jerusalem and the house of Israel in, in Jerusalem and that the, the Judah should prosper and remain a people. Sweet. Let's keep going. All right. That's that's what I'm getting from Hosea. And it's gonna it's gonna talk about this a lot, but some of the promises when it talks about taking them out of their captivity, and, and it does talk I, I know it was very favorable to Judah towards the beginning, but it says as it was that their goodness is like the dew. It's going to evaporate and they are gonna turn south. And just like Isaiah prophesied that they were gonna be destroyed, Hosea prophesies the same thing. It's gonna prophesy their eventual return. Uh, chapter 14, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thy iniquity. Take with thou the words and turn unto the Lord, saying to him, Take thou all iniquity and receive us graciously, for we will render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from them. And the sense is, God will, like he, like he tells, tells Hosea to take this, this woman of whoredoms, if you will, God will take Israel regardless of what happened in their past and he will love them freely and they will turn and love him. And then he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. 
and I will show you that mercy that you didn't have before. That's the that's the the thing of Hosea. Let's cool. go to Joel. Yeah, Joel. Joel has one of the most interesting names in the Old Testament, and it was actually a fairly common name in the Old Testament. Joe is from Jehovah, and El is from Elohim, and it literally means Jehovah is Elohim, which is kind of an interesting name. And and for us, I think particularly in uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we've always looked at Elohim and Jehovah as these two separate beings, and Elohim always signifies the Father, and Jehovah always symbolizes the Son. But in the Old Testament, Jehovah is the Elohim. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the New Testament. He is God. And God in Hebrew is Elohim. Jehovah is God. So it's an interesting name. Uh, It's a theophoric name. The problem with Joel is we don't know when he lived. You look at verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. That's it. It goes into verse 2, Hear this, ye old man, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in the days of your father? Okay, what, when? If we go back to Hosea, it tells us in the reign of, in the days of, and it mentions the kings. And Jeremiah tells us that, and Isaiah tells us that. And so we have enough context to place everybody where they're at. Joel is one of these prophets that we can't solidly place in time. There's some people that say Isaiah quoted from Joel, so he had to have lived before Isaiah. There's some people that say that Joel actually came very late after Jerusalem was restored, after Babylon was conquered and they were able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. That's when Joel's writing. The truth of the matter is, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that anybody knows. Uh, he's, he's talking about something that bad is going to happen, though. He says, hear this, old ye, ye old man, Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Has this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your grandchildren tell their children and their children another generation. That which the palm wormer hath left, hath the locust eaten. That which the locust hath left, the cankerworm hath eaten. That which the cankerworm hath left, the caterpillar hath eaten. Awake ye drunkards and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he that hath cheek teeth of a great lion. So again, you have that other reference of a nation being like a lion that's going to go among them and tear his people apart. He's talking about a great famine when all of their food is eaten. The palmer worm is going to eat, and then the locust is going to come and eat what's left, and then the canker worm and the caterpillar till there's nothing left for anybody to eat. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and hath cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. This reminds me, it's very reminiscent of Isaiah. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 5, when we're talking about all the food being cut off and the vine being done, not being able to get drink, and and the vineyard being destroyed, look at Isaiah chapter 5, when Isaiah says, Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built the tower in the midst thereof and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. 
O now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, half of it brought forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. So when we go to Joel's message, it is very reminiscent of what Isaiah is saying. It's saying it's going to be eaten up. Everything's going to be eaten up by the locust, the caterpillar, and the whatnot. It's going to be trodden down. An army like fierce lions are going to come in and trample it out. It's, it's prophesying the destruction of the Lord's people. The field is wasted. The land mourns. Uh, it's going to talk about these people. It's going to be as if there was, the garden even is in front of them, and as the army comes and burns it up, it's going to be a desolate waste behind them. So this is, it's prophesying some serious destruction because the people have turned away from the Lord, which is a, a very common theme. And it's going to talk about an army, uh, chapter 2, like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, they shall leap, like the noise of flame of fire that devours the stubble as a strong people set in battle array. Before their paces, the people shall be much pained. All the faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march everyone on his ranks. They shall not break their ranks. Uh, this army that's come through and destroying, it says the earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. The stars shall withdraw their shining and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and weeping, and with mourning, and rend your garments, excuse me, rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet of Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. So he's telling them darkness and destruction awaits you, but it's not too late. So he's acting very much like the watchman of the tower that Jeremiah and Ezekiel that gets described in there, right? If you warn the people as a watchman, you see what's coming and they turn and repent, then you've saved them. And he's saying, look, this is coming. Turn to the Lord. Perhaps he will still save you. And it's such a good line when he says, and rend your heart and not your garments. And that's what Israel so often gets accused of doing. You approach to me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And, and I no longer want sacrifices. I don't, your sacrifices mean nothing to me. Instead, I want you to sacrifice a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So many times we get caught up in the outward and, and making sure we're checking the boxes and doing all of these things but is our heart in the right place? And, and are we doing it for the right reason? And who's, who's struggling? Because so many times the destruction of Israel has come because Israel didn't care for the fatherless, for the widows, for the strangers, for people that didn't have support. God was showing them so much love and mercy 
but they weren't turning around and showing that love and mercy to the weak ones. Take this to the to, to the New Testament you love so much, Nate. When when you have the story, the parable of the debtor, right? That this guy that is owed a huge or owes a huge amount to the king, and he and he shows up, and the king forgives him of all of his debt, which is so significant. And then he turns around, and rather than forgive such a minor debt that his debtor owes him, he throws him in the prison. This is Israel. God has shown them so much mercy, so much love, delivering them from Egypt in a mighty show of power, giving them manna, feeding them, saving them through all of the judges that they raised up over and over and over again. But when it comes right down to it, they'll tear their garments. They'll they'll do their sacrifices. They'll do everything that the Lord says and says, are we not righteous? We're doing all of these things, but they're not loving and helping the victims, the poor people, the people that can't stand up for themselves. And I guess the potent question, we are Israel, does that still happen today? And is it fair to say when we see somebody on the corner holding up a cardboard box begging for help, when we've been given so much mercy and so much compassion and so much love, is it fair for us to try to avoid them or not look at them? And, and I don't know that I can judge every individual situation or every individual thing, but do we sometimes turn away and try to not help people that are struggling in front of us? In some sense, though, Nate, I have to think that modern Israel, we are different. I look at the ministering program, and, and I look at the way we reach out and help, and I look at the way I've been helped and my family has been helped over the years. And I can't tell you how many times when I've gone through difficult situations with employment or being able to provide for my family, that, that money has shown up on my doorstep and I have no idea who, who gave it to me or meals have been provided or when we have a baby and, and people come and take care of us, I feel like I was lost or, or, or somebody that, that maybe was struggling silently and yet the Lord never lost sight of me and the Lord's people were always there to surround and help and love me and take care of me. And, and for me, it gives me hope that modern Israel, just in how I've been treated by, by my neighbors and by strangers, that, that we are different. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Nate? Well said. Well said. Uh, wrapping this up, maybe. Okay. In chapter two, we're going to read some of the promises that the Lord's trying to restore his people. And he says, let's go verse 21. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain of the latter in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. 
and ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And I'm going to skip into the end of chapter 3. But... um. And it shall come to pass in the last day that the mountains shall um, drop down with wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land but Judah shall dwell forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation for I will cleanse their blood that have that I have not cleaned for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. And that's, I mean, that's the message of Hosea. That's the message of Joel. Regardless of what's happened, regardless of the situation that you find yourself in, regardless of how dark it might seem and how dark it might get, the Lord said, take a wife that, that has these issues. Take a wife of, of these problems. And that Lord, the, the, the prophet that took it is Jesus. Hosea, Jesus is still committed to marrying us, no matter how late in the hour it is, if we're willing to turn and to repent. And and going maybe one last New Testament reference, Nate, as we looked at the workers that came in the day, the some in the early morning and some later in the day and some late at night, and the ones late at night were recompensed just as just as well as the ones were early in the morning. And as the prophet says, yeah, you're in a bad spot. Yeah, you didn't do things well. But you know what? The reward is just as good for you if you're to take time to stop, to fast, and and to break your heart rather than your outward garments and really turn to the Lord. And these are the promises that he will deliver. He will pour out his spirit upon you, and he will establish you, and he will set you free. And it's interesting when he says that the the nations that oppressed you are going to be desolate, that are going to be ruined. Maybe one last thought to take us off on this, Nate, is we were looking at the dream last week in Daniel, the ram that represented Persia that was beaten by the goat that represented Greece, and Alexander was the horn, and it comes and it, and it, and it rams into the ram and, and slays it. Uh, someone in uh, an institute class pointed out this last week that it's interesting that it's an image of a ram to represent the kingdom, and that these animal kingdoms are represented by goats and rams, these animals that are used in sacrifice. Because the Lord says, I will pay the ransom of you with Egypt. I will sacrifice Egypt or Edom or Babylon or whatever the nation may be so that you can go free. I will pay that price. And, and you look at the fall of Babylon in order for Jews to be freed by the Persians to go back and you see the fall of Egypt in order for them to go into the land of Israel and be established in the first place. And this idea that a mighty, powerful country, and, and I look at that almost symbolic of Christ, this lamb, as a mighty, symbolic God who was willing to lay down his life and sacrifice himself so that the nations can go free, so that the, his people can go free. He is the sacrifice that makes it so that we can be established and restored. Great stuff.
Yeah. What are we talking about next week? Uh, we got a we got a, a few more minor prophets to talk about before we get to Jonah. Yeah, baby. So it's going to be uh, Amos and Obadiah. Well, uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. And uh, I'm excited to uh, see what we got with Amos and Obadiah. What do yeah, you think? Buddy. What do you think? It'll be fun. All right. Well, then, uh, until next week. See ya.